Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. When Mayor Pete Buttigieg was first on the podcast in December 2018, he was the little-known mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Today, he's a top-tier candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. I sat with him in Charleston, South Carolina, where we talked about the rise of Bernie Sanders, the hurdles he still faces with Black voters, and whether he's actually gay. Hear it all right now. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. All right, let's jump right on in. Is it too late to stop Senator Bernie Sanders? No, but it will be if we don't get our act together. Uh, Look, we have a very clear choice as a party right now. Uh, We can take his approach, and I I recognize that he speaks for a lot of ideals that we share, but it's also an approach that is about consolidating a, a base and pushing away people who disagree with you at a moment when I think we have to be doing the opposite. Uh, now, we're only three states in. Uh, we're uh, on the eve of the uh, South Carolina primary, then comes Super Tuesday, but we could wake up after Super Tuesday with no going back. And I think it's time to really ask ourselves how we're going to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, you said uh, it will be if we don't get our act together. What does that mean? mean? What does that look like? Get our act together. Well, of course, what I think that should look like is to rally around a candidate, perhaps the one candidate to have actually beaten Bernie Sanders anywhere in the country this cycle, which uh, which is my campaign, and uh, look at a vision that can make room for everybody that is very progressive and set up in a way that, that can actually reach out to independents and, and draw some Republicans over the line too, because I think that's how we're going to win in November. Uh, so that's the case that I'm continuing to make, that we cannot uh, – Uh, expect to succeed against a president this divisive if we're sowing a different kind of division from our own side. There's a better way, and our campaign shows the promise of making that happen. And you mentioned divisive, and and Senator Sanders sent out a tweet that caught a lot of people by surprise. They were wondering if it was a bot and not him, but he really did send out the tweet that said, I've got news for the Republican establishment. I've got news for the Democratic establishment. They can't stop us. How, How... Well, give me your reaction to that. Well, I think it reflects a worldview where the Democratic Party is the problem. And that's not how I see things. I've got, yeah, I've never automatically felt like part of any establishment, obviously, uh, uh, competing as I am as a, uh, as a mayor from South Bend, Indiana, and, and not exactly waiting my turn. But uh, to, to say that the big problem in America right now is Democrats. I think misses what's going on. What's going on right now is we've got a president who succeeded with a hostile takeover of the Republican Party and a sense that our party has not been able to connect with a lot of people who would benefit from uh, our policies, who are certainly capable of voting for us. Think of all the people who voted for President Obama uh, just a, a few years ago and then turned around and voted for President Trump. We can't let that happen again. And part of why I was uh, very excited about how competitive we were in the Iowa counties for example, that did just that. They voted for President Obama sometimes twice and then swung over to President Trump uh, is that we don't have to have a repeat of 2016. In fact, the less 2020 resembles 2016 in all respects, the better. Does it offend you that a person who isn't a member of the Democratic Party continues to thunder against the people he'll need to win the nomination and to govern if he were to win in November? 
Well, let me say this. Ultimately, we need to unite the country, and uniting the country begins with uniting the Democratic Party. If you think the Democratic Party is the problem, or, or even sometimes engage in rhetoric that makes it sound like the Democratic Party is the enemy, while competing for the Democratic nomination, that is going to make it very challenging to actually bring folks together in the speed that we need to in order to compete and in order to win. What do you say to his supporters if you are the nominee and he isn't? Because it is no secret that the supporters of Bernie Sanders, the so-called Bernie bros, I've been a victim of them. Lots of journalists have, lots of politicians have, lots of regular or everyday people have been, um, what's the word the kids are using today? Ethered over. That's a new one. I don't know. That. Oh, yeah. yeah saying, right. saying remotely negative things about Bernie Sanders. What do you say to them? Well, I'd say you have a decision to make. If this is about personality, that's one thing. But if this is about policy, if this is about uh, raising wages for workers, if this is about uh, ensuring that corporations are held accountable, if this is about doing something on climate before it's too late, I will be the most progressive president in our lifetimes. It's true that uh, I believe that some of the proposals that, that come from Senator Sanders go too far and, and, and are not going to be uh, passed anyway. But uh, just to be very clear, I am running to be, uh, I think also would be the most progressive nominee we've had in recent memory. So, so if this is really about the change you want to see in the world and not uh, how much you, you uh, feel attracted to the personality of one or another candidate, then uh, I'm offering just that. And I'm offering it in a way that I think could actually uh, unite an American majority that actually is with us on these things. That's the thing you'd, you'd never realize from certainly from looking at the Senate or even from looking at some of the coverage is that there is a powerful American majority right now. That agrees, for example, that the public sector should step up and fix the healthcare problem, just as long as we don't force it on too many people. That agrees that minimum wages have to go up. We got to do something about gun violence. We got to create a pathway to citizenship when it comes to immigration. We got to act on climate. Uh, this is an American majority. Let's let's galvanize it and not blow it up. That sounds great, but what is your what is your path? after Super Tuesday. And I focus on Super Tuesday because we go in rapid succession from South Carolina to Super Tuesday yeah. in three days. What is your path? Well, we need to have a good showing in certainly on Super Tuesday. And I think that we will. Uh, we just uh, were in Virginia yesterday, had, uh, I don't know the final crowd count, but it was the better part of 10,000 people uh, out there with, with amazing energy. Uh, same thing when we were in uh, uh, Colorado on our way out after the, the caucuses in Nevada. Uh, and we're going to work to compete in, in every one of those Super for Tuesday states. Look, the reality is there's no quick way to a win. Uh, but we believe uh, state by state, election by election, uh, we can piece together what we need, uh, provided that I can do the job of, uh, of gathering the support of those who are skeptical about Senator Sanders' approach and looking for a better way. I'm going to go back to basically the beginning of this conversation where I, I, I asked you about um, if we don't get our act together. And of course, it's all you think it's about coalescing around you. But there are a lot of people who are saying all the centrist, so-called centrists in the campaign are taking votes away from um, each other and allowing um, Senator Sanders to run away with it. Um, what would happen um, or how does that happen if you or Senator Klobuchar or Senator Warren don't get out of the race? I mean, at some point comes after Super Tuesday, there's going to be a clamor within yeah. the within the party. How do you make the case to the party that you shouldn't be the one well, to would, drop out? Yeah, I, I would say this. So, so if if folks are looking for an alternative to Bernie Sanders and believe that uh, there need to be fewer alternatives in order for anyone to make it, 
why would you look to the one person who's actually beaten him anywhere in this cycle as the one that you would ask to step aside? Um, you know, we, we have been able to uh, defy all of the pundits' expectations. We have been able to compete, uh, especially in, again, those areas that we're going to need in order to defeat Donald Trump that, that vote Democratic usually but haven't lately. And uh, we, we've got a, a track record of coming in ahead of a lot of the other people who are going to be uh, uh, looking, uh, uh, looking to their left and looking to their right saying, are you going to make room for me? And at the end of the day, uh, voters are going to settle this. Well, you've got one big hurdle and, and that's the African. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least to, to my mind, at least, you know, coming into, to South Carolina and also Super Tuesday, and that's the, the black vote. This is now our third time talking. The first time was in December 2018. We didn't talk about the black, black vote then because, well, you weren't running for president. You were still mayor of South Bend. By the time we talked in May of 2019, your candidacy had really taken off. You told me then that your inability to gain Black support then would improve as voters got to know you. Now you're standing among Black voters in the latest CBS YouGov poll is 4%, which is better than the 0% in polls before. What's going on? Well, here's what I'm finding, especially in South Carolina. Uh, those candidates who have major support in the black community, uh, uh, one of two things is true about them. Uh, they have either been around for years or decades to earn that trust and earn that support, or they're billionaires uh, with unlimited resources to put on television and uh, and get their message out. Obviously, I'm neither of those. I've had a matter of months rather than decades to uh, to get known, uh, and uh, and I don't have billions of dollars. When you have one of those two things, then uh, any downsides or flaws that you have can be overcome based either on your resources or based on an understanding of who you are. I know that we don't have that, and I know that the only thing I can do is to make sure that I'm showing up, that I'm listening. Uh, that uh, that my campaign reflects the voices of those who've been excluded. And I recognize what I'm asking of, uh, in particular, when I'm asking for the vote of a black American, I'm asking for a vote, first of all, that was uh, one, especially here in the South, within living memory at a terrible cost in terms of the courage and the, the blood uh, that was needed just in order to get that vote that I'm asking somebody to trust me with. I'm asking them to give it to a newcomer. Uh, I'm asking them to give it to me knowing that we have had colossal struggles with racial justice on my watch in our hometown of South Bend, as I believe every diverse city has. But uh, we can point to all of the things that went well and all of the things that didn't. And I recognize the, the hurdles that that represents. I'm also offering the most comprehensive plan that anyone in this campaign has put forward when it comes to a vision for black America. Uh, I'm offering a personal commitment to lift up the voices as there were the voices that shaped that Frederick Douglass plan for black America. It's not good because I sat in a room and surrounded myself with books and wrote it. It's good because it was shaped by black uh, voices, by experts, by uh, people who have lived experience that I don't. And as somebody who will never have the lived experience of being treated differently, uh, being treated worse and discriminated against because of my race. That's the best thing that I can offer, that I will continue to elevate those voices and will be working to earn that support in that way. So you, you mentioned a, per, a personal commitment, and I've heard you talk about these things even in our in our very first first interviews. So your your passion and where your heart is on this is is not new to me. But for a lot of people, um, they're having a hard time, one, believing you and trusting you. And a 
couple of things have happened uh, since we saw each other in May at the 90, well, gosh, that's almost a year ago, May 2019. Um, there were some um, problems with endorsements that you thought you had from African Americans, but weren't. There were problems on staff of the black members on your staff, the story in the Times about what was going on, people not feeling like they were heard. And that adds to sort of this impression that um, you say the right things, but you're not doing the right things. What do you say to those black voters who look at you and think, I just don't trust him? Well, I think that's that's only part of the story. And what I'm trying to do is get out the rest of the story. So in South Bend, for example, uh, the, the story of how we cut black unemployment, cut black poverty, uh, worked with some of those very same skeptical uh, kinds of skeptical voices who I, I think a lot about Pastor Taylor, Pastor, one of the biggest, fastest growing black churches in town. And I was coming around as I am now. I, I was introducing myself to voters when I first ran for mayor. And I remember him saying, you know, everybody knows how to come to my church before an election. Let's see what we do after. And afterwards, I didn't just keep coming to his church. We teamed up and were able to do things like uh, develop low-income affordable housing for people that he served. And in this campaign, there have been missteps. I will own that uh, because it's it's my campaign. Uh, but we have also uh, been able to build a team that's uh, 40% people of color. Uh, we have empowered the, the voices internally, even uh, if it led to uh, stories getting out about what people had to express when, when we we were asking proactively, you know, what can we do to make sure that this is not like every other campaign, not like every other workplace, and that we build the sense of belonging that I'm talking about building for the whole country. But again, uh, the, the reality is I've got a matter of, uh, I've had a matter of months rather than a matter of decades uh, to make that center so clear uh, of, of who we are and what we're doing. And I would uh, invite people to, to look to the story, to look to the voices who were part of my campaign uh, from black elected officials from South Bend uh, to uh, national leaders uh, who are part of this campaign because they see what we can do to build that better future and create a sense of belonging in a country that, that's horribly divided. And just as importantly, to win. It's not lost on me that when there's a debate stage now, it's, uh, it's a bunch of white candidates sometimes talking about race in a way that I think all of us should pause and, and be humbled by. Uh, I think that uh, among us, uh, the, the thing that each of us brings that is most relevant to Americans of color right now is the ability to defeat Donald Trump because nobody is feeling the pain of living under this administration more than black and Latino Americans. The, 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 the things that are going on in policy and in, in, in terms of the, the language and the, the, uh, the division. And so there is, I think, a laser focus on making sure that we win, uh, precisely because uh, there are so many Americans who cannot afford for us to lose. So my mother and my aunt Gloria are two people for whom defeating Donald Trump is the number one priority. My Aunt Gloria is for Vice President Biden because her mantra is it's going to take an old white man to beat an old white man, <laughs> <laughs> old school against old yeah. school. My mother is leaning towards Bloomberg because mm -hmm. she said, I like Biden. Um, he's such a nice guy. He's, you know, Mr. Turn the other cheek. But Bloomberg is what cheek? He's going to really take it to to President Trump. If they were sitting here right now, they'll be listening Make the case to them why you are that person to beat, to beat Donald Trump. Well, guess what I would say is this. You can't beat him at his own game because it's his game. 
And so uh, I think the, the both of those cases, I understand the appeal. Basically, the idea is we, we create our sort of alternative version of Trump and put it up against Trump. But I think if we do that, people are going to go for the original. I think the only way to deny this president his famous ability to change the subject and take over the conversation is to offer up something completely different. And by the way, that's the only way we ever win. Every time the Demo a Democrat has won the White House in the last half century, it's been with somebody who uh, was new on the national scene, somebody who was opening the door to a new generation of leadership. That's the only thing that's ever worked for us in, in my lifetime uh, as a Democratic Party. And I think at a moment like this, we've got to meet a, a president as disruptive and as divisive as the one we have, not with a sort of equal but opposite version of a New York billionaire, uh, not, not with uh, uh, the, the kind of Washington playbook that we're used to, but something completely new. So at the Las Vegas debate, probably one of the more cutting lines came from Senator Klobuchar to you. And she said, quote, I wish everyone was as perfect as you, Pete. What did you think when she said that in that moment? I wasn't sure what, what to make of that because, uh, uh, you know, I'm reminded every day of my many imperfections, even if my faith didn't teach me about how broken and imperfect we all are. Uh, my husband in a very loving way uh, and uh, all of Twitter in a less than loving way will remind me of my many flaws. Uh, and and I, I'm sure it was just frustration. Look, we're just people up there. That's the thing that, uh, especially as we get into the heat of competition and we get into this phase where even more than usual, it's the show people forget. Uh, we're human beings up there and, and, and we're tired and we're frustrated sometimes. And, and I'm sure it was just that. It was just a human moment uh, uh, between me and, and somebody I respect an awful lot. And, and we're competing for this office. You're being very, you're being very diplomatic and very, very Pete-like. But that that comment, I think, spoke to Senator Klobuchar's not so veiled frustration with you. That you're, this is my characterization. That you're some kid who came from out of nowhere, from nowhere, to be standing on the national stage ahead of your time and in front of her. Uh, what do you say to women for whom Klobuchar's zinger spoke volumes? Well, I get it. Uh, if your sense of uh, kind of who deserves to be president is shaped by things like who has been in the, the Senate and, and in that environment in Washington, uh, kind of paying your dues, then, then I understand that. Um, but to me, this is not about the conventional measures of being prepared for the presidency. Uh, to me right now, we really need a different perspective. And the, the fact that, that the arena that I've been in is not the Capitol Hill arena. It's the arena trying to solve these problems. And by the way, being held accountable for uh, everything that goes on in a low income, uh, tough, troubled, yet growing and hopeful city is every bit as relevant a preparation as any other for the presidency, knowing that there is no job like the presidency, no job even close. Uh, and yet, I think that uh, that kind of background at this particular moment, in order to win and in order to govern, is what we need. It's just a different, it's just a different take on what it means to be prepared and, and what it means to, to belong. I don't think anybody deserves the presidency, me or anybody else. But I think as we go out there to earn it, it's making the case for why the perspective each of us brings is the right one. Does it bug you when your your service as a mayor um, is belittled in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think I've, I've mentioned before that 
you could be a very senior United States senator and have never in your life managed more than 50 or 100 people. Uh, it's not, not that that job isn't very important, but uh, what a mayor has to do, uh, building an administration, guiding a population, shaping a community uh, in moments where there's no one else to call, especially in the Indiana system where there's, you know, there's no such thing as a city manager, for example, uh, in our city. You just have to figure it out. And at a moment when, when uh, we have gotten so far behind as a country, largely because of people saying the right thing or voting the right way in, on Capitol Hill or calling for the right changes, and, and it feels like so, so little has actually moved relative to what has to. I think that, that the experience of a mayor is more relevant than ever. Are you a gay man? Well, yeah. <laughs> and I Definitely. asked that question because <laughs> there's this insane conversation happening within the LGBT community about whether you're actually gay or that you're gay enough. Have you have you I don't this is why I I try to cool it in terms of just reading about myself in general uh, anywhere <laughs> because, you know, things are coming from all sides now. And, and I, I, this conversation is a strange one to me because, uh, you know, especially as somebody who would have given anything to not be gay before I came to terms with who I am. And, uh, you know, I mean, if there was a pill you could take, uh, I would have been all over it when I was trying to trying to face this. And thank God there wasn't because I have this amazing marriage now. And, and, uh, and it turns out, you know, part of how I've been able to make a difference is, is what my campaign has meant for, for queer Americans. But one thing about our community, the LGBTQ community is it, it has a way of sometimes policing its own boundaries, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know what to make of that other than that to me, the whole idea of coming out is to, after trying so hard not to be, to be exactly who you are. And if exactly who I am uh, isn't connecting with somebody else, fine. <laughs> they can go be who they are. Um, but, but let's let everybody be who they are. That's, that's the, the, the signature of the experience of coming out is to take down a fence between who you think you need to be and who you actually are. You know, our, our mutual friend, Richie Jackson, is the author of a new book, Gay Like Me, A Father Writes to His Son. And he was a, a guest on the podcast recently. And I asked him about, you know, what he thought of this whole conversation. And he was very um, passionate about the fact that there is the one of the beauties of the LGBTQ community is that there are no litmus tests right. to to membership. Um, and so. I'm, basically, this is a rhetorical question. Is there one way to be gay? Yeah. The, the, yeah again, the, the richness of this community is that there are so <laughs> many different ways uh, to be gay, and none of them are right or wrong. Uh, other than that, you know, it's, it's more fulfilling when uh, how you present is the, the same as how you feel. Have you talked to Chastin about this? I wonder how he feels uh, about this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I I won't speak for him, but uh, it's something that I think is is frustrating for for him too. And and you know, he his story is very different from me. He found the the uh, the self awareness and the clarity and the courage to understand who he was as a teenager. It it took me uh, uh, a lot longer than that. And uh, so you know, for us, we we just I think we we've learned to go through life without paying so much attention to what people expect of us other than that we want to make sure that we're um, 
we're there for others and, and, and we're uh, going about public life, which is new to us. We're not, you know, I think of, of maybe any of the major candidates, we're not accustomed to being famous. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure in, in the people that we affect who we'll never meet and certainly with everybody we do meet, um, gay or not, that uh, everything we're doing tries to be in the direction of letting people know that they belong, that they belong, that, that we support them in being who they are. Um, and, and that that there's a better way to politics and to public life than what our country is going through right now. You just mentioned before you you came out later um, than your husband did, but le- but later in life, what do you say to people who say that the fact that you came out later was all a political calculation and basically saying that your journey through the closet was disingenuous? I guess I'd say you try, you, you try going through through the, these twists and turns of life, wanting to serve your community, wanting to serve your country. You know, I, when I entered the military, don't ask, don't tell was still policy. Um, you're ready when you're ready. And, you know, like anybody, I made a lot of choices thinking about the future. I also don't think, uh, uh, a perfectly calculated trajectory for a progressive wanting to make a difference in public life would be to move home and go into local government in Indiana, uh, least of all one <laughs> wrestling with his sexuality. Um, I went where I thought I could be useful. And I hit a point where all of the things that I had just backburnered in my personal life couldn't wait anymore, uh, especially when I when I experienced the deployment. And really came to terms in a way I I hadn't before with the fact that whether it was at the age of 33 on the highway to Bagram or whether it was on my 90th birthday, I could go to my grave not knowing what it was like to be in love. When that changed, when I, the way I thought about that changed, everything else changed. And um, everybody can get to wherever they get to on their own time, but that's how I got to where I did. So four quick last questions. Are you tired of people asking you to emote Yes, I am so fear. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, it's another example of you just, it is so much less work to just come to this progress and be uh, this process and just be who you are. And obviously, part of who I am is, is disciplined. I, I would argue, say it, it's precisely because I'm very passionate about lots of things that uh, I've also learned to be pretty level about them in the moment. I think right now is a matter of. Um, contrast, we might be well served to have a president and a presidential candidate who is a little less given to um, shouting or, or arm waving than, than the current president is. Um, or a certain candidate. Or some of my competitors. <laughs> yeah. And <clears throat> look, I, if somebody thinks that, you know, I got the percentage wrong on our college affordability plan, great. Let's, let's argue it. But if somebody says, you know, you're not emotional enough, to me, that's like saying, you know, I don't like your stupid face. You know, it's not something we can really engage on in a meaningful <laughs> way. I'm just, I want to be who I am and, uh, and hopefully that, that, that's uh, helpful to more people than, than not. What have you learned since you started the race a year ago? Uh, you know, there's not a lot of time to pause and reflect. So I think I'll, I'll kind of process it more over time. But I guess the biggest thing I've, I've, I've taken on board through all this is that people really are crying out for that sense of belonging. And I think it cuts across 
ideology. Uh, ideologically, we're already there, yeah, by which I mean our country believes in a progressive way forward, much more than you would think looking at Washington or, uh, or looking at, at the news. But there's something about what it feels like to be in America right now, especially anywhere near politics, that's hurting people. I mean, really, this goes beyond policy. And, and also the, this amazing ability of people to, uh, to, to open their arms to each other that I'm seeing in the context of our campaign, um, but that I, I believe is possible. I know this is a strange line of something to bring up in, in the context of today's politics, but I can see it. Um, people want to make unlikely alliances and partnerships and just feel like, uh, like one country. So break some news here. Who's, who, who would your running mate be? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, some qualities. Come on. Well, you know, talking about a running mate and for that matter, talking about a cabinet. I mean, things that are very important include, first of all, a commitment to doing the job. I mean, that should go without saying, but right now we got a secretary of education who doesn't believe in ed ed public education. We got a head of the EPA who, who doesn't believe in environmental protection. So I would say that. And when it comes to the vice presidency, remember, this is not a political, this is not only a political decision. This is the first presidential decision you make before you know for sure if you're going to be president because the country has to live with that. So it's got to be above all, more than anything else, just somebody who could do the job if you're killed or unable to serve. Everything else is, is backseat to that. Um, having said that, there are so many leaders right now who bring so many remarkable qualities, some of them famous, some of them running for president, some of them kind of out there in the States and, and not getting as much attention. And as I think about putting together leadership that is uh, diverse, that is racially diverse, that has uh, gender balance that, that we need so much, not just because it's the right thing to do, but so that better decisions are made. Um, and diverse in terms of professional experiences and stories. Uh, I'm, one of the things that excites me most about the presidency that I would like to create uh, is from the VP on through the cabinet, uh, the, the team we could put together like we've never had before that would serve this country so well. And finally, what's frightened you as a result of going through this process of running for president? Well, like I said, this is a very human process and uh, it can call out the best in us and it can call out the worst in us. And what frightened, I, I don't believe the world is divided into good and bad people based on who you, how you vote or how you're involved in politics. I think all of us are capable of good and bad things. And seeing the tone, certainly from this president, but not only on his side of the aisle, seeing the social emotional style of Twitter, um, seeing people who are or ought to be at the same on the same side when it comes to the big picture, um, howling at each other sometimes uh, through this this uh, uh, windstorm of, of of noise and chaos and anger and frustration that is this stage of the primary. Uh, it, it scares me a little bit, but not enough to shake my faith in where we can get. Uh, you, in the end, you don't run for office unless you're hopeful. That's why they call us hopefuls. And I'm incredibly hopeful uh, that precisely because this is such a dark and troubled moment, uh, we could pull ourselves out of it in a way that will make us proud of 2020. And that's the, the kind of campaign I'm trying to create. And that's the future I, I keep uh, my eye on to get through all of the negativity and all of the, all of the noise and, and remind myself what we're actually doing here. 
Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 